Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I'm Joe. And this is Speaking of Race. So what are we doing today, Joe? Okay, so with us today is Paul Wolf Mitchell. Paul is a PhD candidate in anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the associate editor of the academic journal History of Anthropology Review. Paul's a biological anthropologist whose work centers around the history of scientific racism, and he's actually done a lot of work with the 19th century skull collection that Samuel George Morton amassed, which Woo! is actually is housed at the University of Pennsylvania, where he is. And because Morton's skull measurements were what I would consider a keystone of 19th century scientific racism, we're going to talk about that work today. So welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. So, Paul, tell us about how you came by your position at the museum and what you're doing there. I was an undergraduate at Penn. And as a result of my interest in anthropology, I started working in the summer after my freshman year in the physical anthropology section uh, at the museum. And although my initial interests weren't actually in 19th century scientific racism, because I was working in the skeletal collection and had become, over the course of time as a research assistant, very familiar with the collection in a number of different ways, it increasingly became more interesting to me. And in particular, in 2011, when there was a piece published in PLOS Biology concerning this debate that was really begun in the late 1970s by Stephen Jay Gould around the question of bias in Morton's craniometric measurements. This was something of an instigation for me to really delve in a bit deeper, largely because that debate around Morton's bias and, and charges that Gould had actually misattributed bias to Morton. And this was really, you know, held a lot of significance for a variety of reasons, both when Gould made these claims in the 1970s and 80s, and then around 2011, after Gould had died, simply because Gould's charge of bias in Morton was seen as being a really clear textbook example of unconscious racial bias in science. This sort of became pretty quickly a debate that had garnered a lot of interest, including, for example, you know, the science editor of the New York Times writing a piece about it. Nicholas Wade. Yes, we've talked about Wade several times in here, too. But you're, you're referring specifically to the really popularized version was Gould's book, Mismeasure of Man, which was pretty influential to me in, in uh, some iterations of my race class, I remember. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah. So wait, let's pause for a second for right. listeners who aren't so familiar with this debate. So Morton did the skull measurements 19th century. And then in the late 20th century, Stephen Jay Gould came around and made the claim that Morton had mismeasured these skulls. And like you were just saying, Paul, I've seen this example taught over and over. I've even taught this example as a, a way to look at the racist biases that were present in early anthropology mm -hmm. and in the scientific racism of the 19th century. Can you just kind of back up and give us a very yeah. brief review of this controversy and and sort of like the key players and what it has meant to the field as a whole. Well, with regard to Samuel George Morton, he's of course come up many times in speaking of race, and he was arguably one of the more influential pre-Darwinian racial 
thinkers and scientists in the United States. His years were uh, between 1799 and 1851, and he's most known probably for his publication Crania Americana, as well as a few others. And in these publications, he describes and measures large numbers of human skulls that he collects from across the world. Morton himself is not physically collecting most of these skulls, but rather they're really being sent to him by a whole network of correspondence that, that he cultivates through his role at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia. So Morton collects about close to a thousand skulls in his lifetime, and he arranges them in the five-fold racial taxonomy of Blumenbach. And he then compares a bunch of measurements, but most influentially, the measurements of brain size. He fills up the skulls first with seed, and then later with lead shot to try to determine the volume of the brain that would sit inside the skull. And of course, Morton comes out with the white supremacist conclusion of Caucasian superiority that then ends with African people at the bottom and the three other races of Blumenbach's taxonomy somewhere in between. So he finds that people who are supposedly white, Europeans and all, have apparently the largest brain cases, right? In other words, the biggest skulls, and therefore they would have had bigger brains, and therefore they would have been smarter, according to Morton's claims, right? This is the basic assumption of the bigger the brain, the smarter the person is what's motivating uh, a lot of this research. And moreover, the larger the average brain within the race, the greater the intellectual capacity of the race. Right. Could you say just a little bit more about Gold and his counterclaims, who he was and what exactly he was critiquing about Morton's work. And maybe why it was at that moment that those critiques became salient, maybe not for the first time, but definitely more in the public consciousness than they had been before. You know, Stephen Jay Gould was one of the most popular science writers in the 20th century and also a major force in evolutionary biology and in paleontology. And he was also a historian of science. He was a professor at Harvard and wrote a column in Natural History Magazine and was was really one of the major public faces of evolutionary biology in the later 20th century. But in addition to that, Gould was also very critical of what he thought were the dangerous implications of a particular brand of evolutionary theory that was developing in the 1970s, 1980s, which was sociobiology. How come Jim's chuckling? I was in grad school during the development of that. And so I actually ended up taking graduate classes from cultural anthropologists about how sociobiology was driving the Yanomamo, for Uh instance. Uh Okay. What do we mean when we say sociobiology? You know, the name is, of course, from Wilson's book, which comes out in 1975, uh, Sociobiology, the New Synthesis. And he's pretty explicit in his interest in explaining social phenomena through biology. You know, Wilson is, in a way, a reductionist. He thinks that a lot of social phenomena can be explained through a particular gene-centric view of evolution and an adaptationist view of how evolution works that most behaviors, most features of organisms generally, including humans and all the various things that humans do, are really pretty tightly matched to the optimal strategies to maximize genes. Are we talking about stuff like, sort of like genetic determinism to an extent, like the idea that our genes drive everything that we do and that, uh, you know, if we're violent, it's because there's some evolutionarily predetermined reasons for us to be violent. It was the biological reductionism that was... 
yeah. hot in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. I think that the best way to illustrate a lot of the very simplistic and reductionistic thinking of this period of time is Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene actually shows okay. what appear to be human marionettes controlled by puppet strings, and those strings are double helices of, of uh, DNA. Wow, that's, that's evocative. But then that image gets printed on the front page of Time magazine, yeah. Yeah. and the cover story is, we basically do what our genes tell us to do. <laughs> okay, so all this is happening when Stephen Jay Gould is critiquing Morton's. Gould is is very concerned, of course, about the ways in which Wilson and other sociobiologists are far too glibly trying to explain all manner of human behavior through a very reductionistic uh, genetic lens. And that includes Wilson's tries, you know, claims that you can explain homosexuality, you, and even other sociobiologists explicitly claim you can talk about ethnic violence. And this is with regard to a basic genetic sociobiological framework. So mm-hmm. Gould's very concerned about the political implications of this view. And it's not just Gould. He's he's part of a cohort of thinkers, including people like Richard Lewontin, yep. Dick Levin. There are a whole bunch of uh, evolutionary biologists at this time who are quite critical of this view. Gould's contribution is largely a contextualizing historical one. And he pursues that through this book, The Mismeasure of Man, that comes out in 1981, the first chapter or a couple chapters really are about Morton. And again, Gould's claim is simply that, you know, you can look at something so utterly straightforward or apparently straightforward as Morton's attempts to measure brain size by filling up heads with seed or lead shot. And you can actually see even in that incredibly simple procedure, the evidence of unconscious racial bias. And if in something so straightforward, you can see racial bias expressed through the scientific method. We have to be all that much more critical of procedures that are uh, underlying some of the conclusions that are being drawn from sociobiologists and from a variety of other thinkers that want to too quickly jump from a particular data set or a particular interpretation of a data set to a bunch of broad sweeping claims about human behavior and social worth and hierarchy and difference. It was also inflected by both in the 1980s and then continuing into the 1990s, a lot of research on race and IQ that yeah. was, yeah. Um, of course, best exemplified in the 1994 book, The Bell Curve by Bernstein and Murray. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely need the da da does. Yep. We've talked about that one before. Yeah. The Mismeasure of Man was reissued just after The Bell Curve came out. I want to add, I think that's great, all the stuff that you just said, Paul. And, and I want to really underscore the degree to which in the late 80s and well into the 90s, that this wasn't just sort of an academic debate. I mean, infamously, Hillary Clinton, you know, makes the claim about super predators mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how the the incarceration system and the in law enforcement needs to be reoriented, understanding that there are people out there that are often black that are super predators and that it's something in their genes. And that's coming straight out of that scientific literature that was being popularized in the late 70s and early 80s. I even remember having a conversation with somebody who was on the board of education for a Midwestern state that I used to live in, Mm -hmm. in in 1999, (laughs) citing the Douglas Hostetter's Gödel, Escher, and Bach book, which was considered one of the best books of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to be about 
this crazy artist and, and this, you know, box music and stuff like that. But right in the center of the book, there's this whole debate about sociobiology and he quotes from E.O. Wilson. And -hmm. it basically says that all creativity, all human creativity, no matter what form it takes is essentially the same sort of thinking as happens in ant colonies. You know, there's Mm -hmm. where, where E.O. Wilson comes in and that therefore things like education are really not important so here's somebody on the board of education for a state saying, you know, that we only, we can only marginally educate people because they just have these genetic components that are going to make them be whatever intelligence they actually are. Particularly people of minority racial status. Yeah, and, they, and that is always the implicit thing, right? right? They never yeah. actually come out and say it, but that's always the way that it goes. Of course, it's yeah. the argument that Jensen made in 1969, yeah. and it just keeps getting recycled and yep. amplified right up through the most recent iterations this decade, this yeah, right. last couple of years. And the article that Paul has written about this Morton and Gould controversy also frames it in terms of its implications for the more recent hereditarian IQ arguments. So that's that's an important thing to, well, to realize. Yeah, because Charles well, Murray's still publishing books. Um, yeah. 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 Well, we will definitely link to that in the show notes. So maybe now is a good moment to pivot towards talking more about the work you've done, sure. Paul, around this, and particularly with the Morton Skull Collection. Sure. With regard to this debate about Gould and Morton, I'll just state that the first critical look at Gould's criticism of Morton came out in 1988 in a paper in Current Anthropology by uh, an undergraduate at the time, John S. Michael. He remeasured a number of the crania in the Morton Collection and found, in effect, that that the measurements that he took matched many of Morton's published measurements. And for that reason, he questioned some of the conclusions that Gould drew about bias in Morton's measurements. That paper was more or less uh, ignored. And it wasn't until 2011 that there was any major published critique of Gould. And that was this paper that came out in PLOS Biology in 2011 by a whole slew of authors. And that paper also used measurements of Morton's collection to criticize Gould. Importantly, it measured a larger number of crania in the collection. And it did indeed find that the measurements that were taken in the 2000s largely matched Morton's published measurements. But Shortly after that paper was written, which I will say, you know, received a lot of press, and in particular because Nicholas Wade at the New York Times wrote it up. <laughs> Wade, a few years after he publishes this uh, article, is going to be publishing a book called The Troublesome Inheritance that really reasserts in one of the most flagrant ways a reductionistic typological idea of race. You know, and that comes out uh, 2014. And you know, arguably until some books that have come out in the last few years from David Reich and from Charles Murray, that may be one of the most brazen examples of the reoccurrence of, of scientific racism in the last decade. So, you know, Wade has an agenda that helps the, this paper get a lot of press. It seems to kind of trash Gould's reputation for a bit, or at least call it into question. In the following years, there are a few papers that are then re- written examining this 2011 criticism of Gould. And they say, well, we think there are actually some methodological problems here because it doesn't actually appear that Gould ever measured the skulls or actually was particularly concerned about the things that the 2011 paper claims to be addressing. Hmm. There is one point that's really important. 
and I promise I'll, I'll try and tie this all up. All of the, all of the, you know, the wading through these technical details is going to hopefully uh, say something about why re-examining and thinking about the history of racial science is actually really important in framing how we think about these issues in the present. What Gould does in The Mismeasure of Man is that he looks at Morton's measurements and he says, well, Morton publishes about brain size and intelligence in a few different publications. And in the first publications, he uses seed. And in the later publications, he uses lead shot. And Mm -hmm. what Gould's claim is, is that those measurements made with seed were more easily fudged by Morton or his bias, which was a pro-white bias, was more easily introduced into his measurements because when you fill a skull up with seed, you can kind of pack the seeds into there. You can shake them and compress them and uh, you can really fill up the skull. And that might add a few extra cubic inches of, of apparent brain size into your measurement. Whereas if you were to fill up, as Morton may have done, the skull of an African person, he may have only sort of lightly filled the seeds into the into the brain case, shook it a few times, and that was that. This would mean that there was going to be systematic over-measurement of the Caucasian crania and systematic under-measurement of the African crania. This was Gould's claim, and he said that he could show that because in a later series of measurements that were made with lead shot, the difference between the Caucasian crania and the African crania in Morton's measurements was dramatically reduced. And Gould Hmm. said that was because the lead shot method was at least relatively more objective. Hmm. Morton switched methods between seed and shot because Morton was concerned that he couldn't replicate his methods with seed. He actually tried it himself and found that seed did not replicate measurements very well. So he switched to lead shot. And his later measurements after his first book, Crania Americana, are all with lead shot. And the 2011 paper just remeasures the collection and finds that the lead shot measurements were pretty accurate, hmm. which is interesting, but it has nothing to say to the, the major thrust of Gould's argument yeah. with regard to the systematic biased measurement that Morton was, was making. Mm-hmm. The problem, of course, is, is that once the story of Gould being wrong about all of this hits the press in 2011, it's kind of hard to override that story when you, ha- you raise all these little technical uh, objections. And although there are a few pieces published, uh, mostly by philosophers of science, actually, in uh, 2013, 14, thereabouts, you know, the debate kind of goes quiet. And it seems that, you know, the major argument of the 2011 paper seems to at least stand. But what I ended up doing is I didn't actually go back and measure the skulls, but I wanted to see, well, could I find these these seed measurements? Because here's the rub, is that Morton only published the full list of lead shot measurements. He didn't publish all of the seed measurements. Hmm. Uh. He only gave the averages for those. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, if I could go find the original seed measurements, I might be able to find out whether or not they were systematically biased in some way, or mm-hmm. what other explanations there might be for the difference between these seed measurements and the lead shot measurements. And it just so happens, after a little bit of digging in Morton's personal copy of the, his first catalog of skulls, he handwrites measurements next to each of the entries for the skulls in his collection. And these handwritten measurements of brain size differ from his later published lead shot measurements. And I have surmised that these are the seed measurements. 
And the reason is, is because that first edition of the catalog comes out and is dated by Morton in October 1840, which is prior to his published notice of switching to lead shot measurements. Hmm. Moreover, Morton, and this is another interesting point, Morton measures some skulls that were brought to him by George Combe, the phrenologist who is in uh, Mm -hmm. 1839 and 1840, taking a tour, a lecture tour of the United States, had stopped in Philadelphia, had written an appendix to Crania Americana, and had brought some skulls with him that Morton measured and included in his tallies in Crania Americana among those seed measurements of which he reports the average. And this is the crucial thing that I ended up finding when I did find these seed measurements was that, number one, they do differ from the lead shot measurements. And when you group them by race, according to Morton's taxonomy, there are differences from the lead shot, but they don't appear to match the racial biases that one would suspect. Namely, that the biggest differences aren't for example, between the African crania measured by seed and the African crania measured by lead shot, they actually appear to be among the the Malay group that the Blumenbach recognizes and that Morton measures, for example. But what's also interesting is that it's very clear that a number of the crania that Morton measures in his initial publication, Crania Americana, measured by seed, are actually not crania in his collection at all. So it seems that one of the major reasons for the difference between the seed measurements and the, the shot measurements is differences in sample composition, not necessarily uh, differences due to Morton's bias. So he's actually measuring different skulls with the seed and different skulls with the lead shot. And there's some overlap between those samples, but those samples are like up to, let's say, 40% of the samples are different between the two measurements. Wow. Okay. That's a lot. And that doesn't mean that Morton wasn't bias in all kinds of ways. And I think that the upshot is, is that even though it appears that Gould's major argument about the unconscious racial bias in Morton's seed measurements, it doesn't appear as plausible as when Gould first made it. Nonetheless, it is true that Morton's interpretation of his data was incredibly biased. And Mm -hmm. Gould's basic claim that Morton's conclusions were predetermined by his existing biases still is the appropriate way to look at Morton's science. And the way that I tried to show that was by comparing Morton to a contemporaneous scientist, Friedrich Tiedemann, who was the only person to systematically measure human skulls prior to Morton with the aim of trying to measure differences in brain size and relate those to questions of differences in racial intelligence. And Tiedemann's Mm -hmm. conclusion is exactly the opposite of Morton's. Tiedemann also measures hundreds of skulls by visiting a bunch of cranial collections in Europe. And Tiedemann comes to the conclusion that there are no significant differences in brain size or in intelligence among the racial groups. And Tiedemann ends this 1836 paper, three years before Crania Americana comes out, by congratulating Great Britain for the abolition of the slave trade that occurred a few years prior. And he also says that there's no reason that anatomy or physiology can be used to justify slavery or the differential treatment of human races. And he has a very interesting and for his time, perhaps one of the most progressive views on race, certainly among anyone who's engaged in these these anatomical craniological pursuits. But Morton's conclusions are directly opposite to Tiedemann's. Morton comes out 
claiming very explicitly that differences in brain size both indicate that human races are separate species created separately and that these differences in intelligence justify white supremacy, justify the uh, enslavement of, of black people. But why is it that Morton comes to those opposite conclusions from also measuring brain sizes when, and this is one of the interesting things that I looked into, if you analyze Tiedemann's data, Tiedemann's data Although they're derived from completely independent measurements of skulls, from completely different collections of skulls than Morton's, Tiedemann's data are statistically equivalent in the sense that the averages for all of the groups rank in the same way that Morton's do. But Tiedemann looks at and considers ranges to be significant, whereas Morton looks at averages. So when Hmm. Tiedemann looks at his data, he says, well, There's such a huge overlap because the largest brains of some of the African crania in his sample are larger than many or most of the Caucasian crania. And similarly, very small brain Caucasians, uh, smaller than most of the uh, African crania and so on among every one of those groups. There's a huge overlap. Well, Mm -hmm. Morton, when he looks at his data, there's also a huge overlap, but the averages are different on the order of a few cubic inches. And so Morton then really considers the averages to be the relevant statistic for analyzing and interpreting racial differences in intelligence. He doesn't comment on the the ranges, and Tiedemann doesn't really talk about the averages, but Had Tiedemann addressed the averages, he would have basically ended up with a data set that looked like Morton's. And had Morton addressed the ranges, he would have basically had a a data set that looked like Tiedemann's. But from statistically equivalent data sets, independently derived, they come up with completely divergent interpretations. And that means, of course, you have to ask the question, and Gould was right to point our attention to it, well, what are the underlying biases that are bringing each of these scientists to differing interpretations of very equivalent data? But one of the other archival findings that's been quite interesting and telling is that Morton actually writes about Tiedemann uh, in letters, for example, to George Combe. And Morton actually says that he is, in in particular, in 1840, collecting more crania of, uh, in his words, native Africans to better justify his claims about, about African inferiority and to, in Morton's exact words, compete with the experiments of Professor Tiedemann. Now, hmm. There's never any mention of Tiedemann in Morton's books, uh, but also in his his folio of notes that is the basis for the texts of Crania Americana and then later Crania Egyptiaca, there's reference to Tiedemann in his notebooks. So it's very clear that Morton is avoiding this head-on confrontation with Tiedemann, and that is also a part of the strategy here. Rather than directly address your opponent, you simply ignore them. That seems to be, for a variety of reasons, the tack that Morton took. And Morton, one might say, unfortunately, won the debate, not necessarily because he convinced everybody about the superiority of his methods or that his conclusions were obviously on technical grounds superior, but he crowded out the competition. Tiedemann never has the kind of popular interest and support that Morton does. And the other question is, of course, who's the relevant audience? And perhaps there were more people who were interested in hearing biological justifications for white supremacy and superiority than there were people interested in hearing Tiedemann's views. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly you have the entire uh, <laughs> slavery industrial yeah. complex yeah. that was interested in Morton's work. And and then Types of Mankind, of course, uh, comes out using that skull yeah. collection and building off of Morton's work and then sharpening it into into the real scientific justification for continued slavery. Yeah. And 
And then after the Civil War, continued uh, uh, suppression to the degree possible of uh, of the African body. That's good. Yeah. I and Tiedemann, on the other hand, you know, the British were like, thank you for thanking mm-hmm. us. <laughs> but that's about it. He nonetheless really, for reasons that are still a little bit mysterious, really fades away from the debate. He doesn't contribute publicly to it, although his son-in-law, who is also an anatomist, ends up writing a pretty critical review of Cranium Americana in a German scientific magazine when it comes out, although Tiedemann himself never has any published statement on it. Well, maybe we should close out by talking more Mm -hmm. about the repatriation issue. Joe, do you want to talk about your thuggy skulls? (laughs) <laughs> well, only in the sense that, you know, the thug skulls that we did an episode on those, the ones that were sent to the Edinburgh Phrenological Society by officials in, in the British colonial government in India in 1833 for racial analysis. They were, to remind listeners, the skulls of executed criminals that were believed to be kind of like Clinton's super predators. They were yeah. believed to be inherently a violent caste and the caste name that they were given was thug, which is actually where the English word thug comes from. As far as I know, those ones are still in the Anatomical Museum in Edinburgh, much like the Morton Collection is Mm -hmm. still in the museum at Penn. And yeah, it makes me wonder what should be happening with all these, you know, uh, the, the thug skulls I mentioned, because they're a clear example of major brutality and very, very unethical removal of remains from one side of the world to the other. And it seems to me there's a parallel process here with Morton. And so I know this is something that you've thought about quite a lot, Paul. And I'm curious, especially as someone who's worked with these collections, what you think should happen with them? Well, and it needs to be recognized that it is the prerogative of a descendant community to determine the disposition of the remains of their ancestors. The challenge is figuring out who is a descendant community what comprises the descendant community for a lot of these collections, particularly older collections like Morton's, these were collected in the 1820s or 30s, 40s. This means that the, these are remains from you know people who were many, many gen- generations separated from the present. Although there have been, you know, we've had the repatriation of at the museum of about over 100 uh, crania from the Morton collection to Native Americans today, there are still hundreds of skulls from the collection that fall outside of NAGPRA. Mm. With regard, for example, to the remains of enslaved people in the Morton collection, one of the problems is that a number of these individuals, over 50 of them, died in Cuba but were, but were born, and it's not known where, in West Africa. Mm. And it's not clear that there is any documentation that uh, at least is known that could elucidate where in West Africa these people were born. We don't know exactly where they're remains from below the neck were buried in Cuba. And then the question of to whom or to where to return these remains is a difficult one to answer, or what even the relevant descendant community is to begin the conversation of figuring out what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, that's a great point. And thank you for walking us through all of that stuff. Thanks again, Paul, for taking some time with us today. And we wish you the best of luck moving forward with your work. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, uh, I look forward to uh, listening into the podcast as more come out, and I, I'm uh, really glad to have been here. I'm Jim, the biological anthropologist. I'm Eric, the historian of science. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist, and you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Find us on Facebook at SOR Podcast, on Instagram and Twitter at Speaking of Race, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. 